Hey, I'm Mike Myers, and this is the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, which is geared to support songwriters and producers to gain confidence and turn pro. I bring on industry experts to help you improve and monetize your skills, engage better in the writing process, and build healthy habits to create a sustainable career that you love. Caffeinated, inspirational, conversational. Hey friends, Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number 81, Mike Turner. Now, Mike Turner, he is an award-winning music supervisor, editor, music producer for TV, film, advertising. He's done things for brands like uh, Converse, Booking.com, Petco, Microsoft. In television, he's supervised shows and series for uh, CBS, Paramount+, Plus, Netflix, MTV, DirecTV, Hulu, Viceland, NE. Yeah, I could keep on going on. And for me, when I started music licensing, I went to a whole bunch of conferences. And every single conference I went to, Mike was speaking he was a panelist and uh, to me it was always funny always giving great insight into this world that was just so new and for me it still is it's ever-changing but it's really cool to hear the perspective of someone that's been in this position music supervision for a while and the insight that you can give so if you are someone who's brand new to this concept or you've thought about i need a message music supervisor i need to do this i need to do it before you do any of that just listen to this episode because not only are you going to hear a really awesome story of how Mike got into music supervision, his background, which I think is important. People breeze over this when it comes to supervisors. They always treat them as like, oh, get me this thing. They're human beings too. They've got cool stories. Uh, and so I feel this is a great chance for you to hear that story. But also, he's going to give some advice for artists that are looking to pitch their music, some of those things to not do or the things to do. So if you're someone in that position that's ready to send that first email before you do, just listen. So I'm going to stop right now and we're going to dive into it. Episode number 81 with Mike Turner. Other Mike, Mike Turner, thanks for being here, man. It can be only one. <laughs> there can only be one. Uh, other Mike. <laughs> other Mike, this is the first. It's yeah. like the Mortal Kombat, like, choose yeah. your Mike. Um, <laughs> dude, this is awesome because, you know, for me, like when I started getting into licensing, I feel every conference I went to, you spoke at. <laughs> like, it would always oh, yeah. be like, I'd be like, oh, and it was... And what I loved about your approach to was you were very open with your process and, you know, giving advice. You didn't hold back. But it was also, too, in a way that was just like I was like, oh, also casual. And I mean that in a good way. And it wasn't like you must do this, this, this to achieve <laughs> the net. But it was just like very open in the process. And you were honest, like, hey, you know, I love things that are great songs. And I that made me kind of like think hard too about like oh that's right you know this is a service-based industry and they have to be good songs and <laughs> before we get into all of that i, I want to yeah. know like you know for you you know i look to at stuff you post like you're always getting you know you you release music you do gear and i'm like oh, was music just basically it for you growing up like the thing that you just loved Yes and no. I mean, I, I, I feel like I actually kind of came to it a little bit late or it was back burner for me for a while. Like I picked up the guitar. Well, my, I think my parents got me piano lessons when I was like 10 and I, it, I didn't really take to it. You know, yeah. it's like the whole like when you're kind of made to practice something, you sort of resent it, you know, and so it just it, it didn't like 
I liked music, but I just didn't have the discipline. I think it was maybe just like too early or something. Yeah. Um, and then late, so I kind of gave that up. And then like around eighth grade, me and my friend, you know, this is like the 1990, probably like in 89, 1990 was, you know, in Seattle, Washington, like the, in the middle of midst of the grunge explosion in Seattle. Ooh. So me and my yeah. little, you know, dipshit friends wanted to be in a band, <laughs> even though we didn't know like how to play anything. We just knew being in a band was cool. So I yeah. borrowed a guitar from a friend and like, just wanted to play it knowing nothing and I didn't want anyone to really show me cause I didn't want like to have formal lessons. I just, it, so it was yeah. almost like a secret and I came up with my own crazy tuning, um, just like based on nothing, like zero musical knowledge. Um, and it ended up being like a weird op- variation of an open tuning, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you could kind of just like get all over the neck with, and everything you played sounded more or less like a chord. Um, but there was some variation of that, but anyway, I learned how to play guitar in this like invented tuning, uh, and so then it was really fun, like me and my friends, like playing in this like awful band. Uh, but that, like, I learned a lot of, I guess, like coordination and like rhythm in guitar. Uh, and then when I realized that I was playing in a nonsensical made up tuning, it was definitely a step back where I was like, oh crap, I actually have to learn how to do this thing. But I'd already developed some coordination skills. So it felt like I, even though I didn't know like the fingering and actually anywhere around the neck, like I was a little bit ahead of maybe someone starting from zero because I had like some hand strength and stuff like you that. You implemented it. You actually yeah. started to put in the practice, which is sometimes where people get stuck because they're in the nut, like consuming and like, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I'm like, cool. So what songs have you played? Like I just dove into it like, you know, enthusiastically, you, you know, just wanting to like make sounds, like not knowing what I was doing. So it never felt like practice. So I was just like jamming out, not just being oblivious to like how wrong it all was, you know, <laughs> but it was like super fun. And so I think then when I was, once I like ended up going to this sort of artsy high school where everybody was like a dope musician yeah. and it was very like, you know, it was, it was like a, a private, like kind of artsy like high school in Seattle where, you know, the hallways were like lined with instruments and everybody like, you know, between classes, like sitting on beanbag chairs and, you know, jamming and, and they were all like really good and new music theory and they were all like cool and smoked clove cigarettes and stuff. <laughs> and so I started like hanging out with those guys and actually like, you know, relearning how to play the guitar in a way that like, you know, was the, the normal way. Anyway, this is like a long winded way of saying it was even then, like that was kind of the the beginnings of it, I would say from like eighth grade and through high school. But I was, my whole focus in life was ski racing. I was a, I was like, you know, a hardcore ski racer. Really? And yeah. And like from the time I could walk up until pretty much college where I ended up going, even after this high school experience, going to boarding school specifically for ski racing. And I just wanted to be on the U S ski team. I wanted to be a world cup ski racer. Uh, I worked my way up to like, you know, the very like the 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 U.S. development team, which was basically like you know a uh, like a division of the U.S. ski team that like you know if you're 17 and you're winning races and you're doing like you know yeah uh, really well like you know they they're sort of looking at you and then you can kind of advance up through there if you're like qualifying and then I injured myself really bad uh, at, messed up my shoulder and ended up going to college instead of like pursuing Yoski team stuff. <laughs> and Man, so that's... I did not expect that answer where it was just like, <laughs> ski. I'm like, really? Yeah. So that was kind of like music was a cool thing, but like yeah. ski was like, that was like at the forefront. Yeah. So I was always like, you know, playing guitar in the vans, in, you know, in the van, like the way to ski races yeah. and like entertaining my friends and making up silly songs and shit like that. And I liked music, but, but skiing was always the main thing. And then once I gave that up in college, because I got a partial, uh, like, very small athletic scholarship to a good school. 
Um, and, and then I, I quit like halfway through my freshman year in college because I was sort of burnt out. I was like, why, why am I doing this now anyway? And then all the hours in the day opened up. Like I wasn't, I didn't have to get up at five in the morning to like work out and lift weights and, you know, then be training in the end of the day and then studying. So suddenly it was just like, oh, well, what do I fill this void with? And it was music. And then I was playing in bands and doing drugs and <laughs> lost 20 pounds. And, <laughs> and it was a blast. <laughs> Uh, it's funny when you were mentioning too, like at the beginning of learning guitar, like you were kind of figuring out a way. I had uh, like previous episode way back, uh, Chris Blue from Prisons of the United States of America. Yeah. He was like, he was like, yeah, you know, I, don't, I can't play a bar chord. And so he just talked about like, you know, he was just like, I just kind of do this too. It was so much easier. And I figured, you know, and he tried to play a bar chord and he was like, see, I can't, I can't do it. So he was like, I'm just yeah. going to stick with this. And yeah, was, he famously his guitar only had like two or three strings on it. Yeah, like he's just like right? full on, yeah. and that's it. And that's the <laughs> and the same thing. But I find that interesting that you you kind of jumped into it, figured out like I'm just gonna start playing, and so you were building up some skill too rhythmically, and again just putting the implementation side, and then you have this period where you kind of learn a little bit more because there are some people that are like, hey, let me show you, mm-hmm. and then. Just when you think you're going to do this, it's like then music's here to be like, well, you might as well just fill your time with songs and, you know, like playing and just having fun with music instead now. Yeah, absolutely. And also funny, funny that you mentioned Chris Blue, because he helped me buy, uh, I think, my first guitar amp, actually. Really? Okay. Um, Yeah. Super randomly, like, uh, you know, because I was like. I guess, well, I guess I was in eighth grade. I think I'd maybe had like a PV backstage 112 before that, but I don't know if it was mine. I think I was borrowing it. And so I finally had some money together and I went to go buy a cool guitar amp at this place in Seattle called The Trading Musician, uh, which was like this sort of like in Seattle, this kind of legendary, like used vintage, like guitar shop. I think they had some new stuff. It was mostly like, you know, consignment and new new stuff. And I went in there to like look for one and Chris Ballou was in there. Uh, and I, of course I knew who he was cause he was from the presidency of the United States of America. And like, you know, we were hanging out in the like amp area. And so I started chatting with him a little bit cause I was like, Oh, I'm a fan. And he was like, what are you doing here? And I, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm going to buy a guitar amp. He's like, what are you going to get? And I was like, I don't know. And then, uh, and so he just asked me a bunch of questions about what I was playing and stuff. And then he was like, you should get this thing, you know? <laughs> and he was like, literally, he didn't work there, but I was like, okay, was I'm going to get that. I love yeah, that. It was a, a Fender Princeton, like a okay. you know, a little, yeah, but it was like a solid, you know, solid tube amp. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. That, yeah. That, and yeah, because he's, I think he's still based out in Seattle or yeah. or, or Portland, somewhere. I forget where he said he was, but that makes sense. They're just kind of hanging out there and be like, what you getting? You should yeah. get this instead. Yeah, I mean, I am sure he was buying cool stuff, but that that was like one of the cool like guitar, you know, yeah. music stores, like mics, guitars, drums, I mean everything, and it was, you know, independently owned. It wasn't like a guitar center, but also this would have been like 1990, so before all the mega stores took over everything. Yeah, and that's kind of <laughs> like at the cusp still where he's still kind of plugging away. Uh, mm-hmm. cuz I'm trying to think. Well, that's not until 1994, 93, somewhere around there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I yeah, like I was aware. I mean, they were you know locally famous yeah. already, but um, and somehow I knew who they were. But yeah, they weren't like mega stars yet. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty funny. And now I guess yeah. I mean, he's got. I think he's still doing Casper Baby Pants, his children's. He did. He, music he's stuff. he's kind of slowly wrapping that up. I mean, after yeah. like twenty albums, which is crazy. Yeah. It's just <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So then we you're now playing in bands all the time, and you know. Was that now the goal where you were just like, cool, maybe this is going to be the vehicle that I'm going to do for the thing? 
yeah, for a while that was like, oh yeah, I want to just be a rock star. You know, yeah. I want to be like front bands and write songs, and it was super fun. And uh, I didn't, I guess I didn't really think too far down the line of like how I'm going to make it in music, which is another thing that's so different. I think partly about just you know where we are in 2023 and like the awareness of industries among young people, like really understanding what the music business is and stuff like that. And also regionally, like, you know, everyone in L.A. has some, like, better concept of the entertainment business than, like, probably anybody in Seattle at that time, you know. Um, but, no, I just, I was, like, beyond, like, knowing what a record label was and that, like, you know, bands get played on the radio and people think they're awesome and cool. I had no, like, direction of, like, or strategy of, like, how do I make it in the music industry? There were no conferences and, like, you know, tutorials and master classes and barely the Internet. So yeah. it's just... Like, I just like, yeah, I just want to play in a band, play in bands with my friends and maybe people will dig that. <laughs> now, did the bands ever go past yet? Like, were you doing like a little bit of like local touring beyond like your state too and just starting to like. Not, I mean, we played in Seattle and then like I had a couple different bands in college and we'd play, you know, in Eastern Washington. And then I moved around a lot after that, like multiple different cities. I, st- I stuck in Chicago for like six years and I played there a little bit, but that was kind of mostly solo uh and like and and recording and also so after college basically after college uh, and I got my degree in English literature and I went back to school for audio engineering actually because okay. um I was interning in recording studios and stuff like that at that time and really being like yeah I want to work in music and and record my own music and um just got enamored with recording studios and just like just how cool all that was and realizing that maybe I, I wasn't going to be able to really learn it all just from looking over somebody's shoulder, you know, it's just like too much to know. And so I did go to get like a technical degree from the conservatory of recording arts and sciences in Arizona. Uh, and I thought maybe, you know, I still wanted to be a rock star, but I thought maybe I could be a record producer or, you know, an engineer. And, uh, it was really valuable. Like I learned a lot of stuff that I've definitely used to this day, but probably one of the most valuable things was I learned. I just, I don't think I wanted to be a record producer professionally. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. maybe I'm not, maybe like I, it, I loved, I loved it. But when I looked at the landscape, I'm like, there's maybe 50 guys in this whole industry that like make a killer talented enough and in the right circles. And everybody else is like, you know, sleeping on couches and living off pizza crusts. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that, chase that professionally. I'm maybe not quite that talented at this, you know, but it was great for my own stuff. You know, it just seems too. what's interesting is you, you, you know, some people freak out where they're just like, I'm not sure what I, you know, I don't know if I can do this or I don't know if I should be doing this. It seems like you were just like, I'm just going to try this and I'm going to see if I like it. It seemed like a lot of like testing the waters. Sure. <laughs> or, or just being like open. I mean, I, I think yeah. there was a point at which I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely going to be a record producer. This is like yeah. for me. And then got way into it and realized like just maybe how difficult that was going to be. Yeah. And and also, I, you know, I mean, I think like all of us, you you tend to gravitate towards the things that you're naturally good at. And sometimes when something comes a little harder, you're like, I don't know, like maybe there's an easier path. So for better or for worse there, I made some calculation at that point where I was like, yeah, I still want to work in the music industry. I still want to write songs. I feel like this is so technical and so hard that maybe I'm not like so naturally gifted at it that I'm going to like be a winner. So maybe there's more success to go around in like, uh, 
other areas of the music business. And that's when I start kind of looking at like, maybe I want to work for a record label. Maybe I want to be an A&R guy. Maybe I want to be something where I can sort of bullshit my way through this instead of having to have an actual skill, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so then after at that time was the, since you're kind of in Arizona, is it kind of like, well, LA is right. Not that far. I might as well just kind of make the trek out and just like see, uh, no, because uh, so from Arizona, I moved to New York. Okay. Uh, I got an internship at like a management company in New York uh, that just briefly turned into a job until they went out of business. And then I moved to uh, like I had a friend who had was like like a big head honcho executive at MTV in Miami where all their sort of global business is done. And he was like come stay with me in Miami. And then, so I like basically overnight just like abandoned my, I was like not even on a lease in New York. I was just paying somebody rent. <clears throat> so I just went to Miami and I ended up living with him and his fiance for like a year. Uh, tr- and I was like doing odd jobs for MTV cause everybody spoke like three languages there cause it's their global business yeah, yeah, hub. Yeah. And I just didn't really have the language skills. So I was like taking BTS photos and, you know, doing like PA work for the like MTV music awards and stuff like that. Uh, and then like pursued a job in Chicago. I was like, I got to get out of Miami at a certain point. Just like nothing's really working here. So then I moved to Chicago to pursue some work that also kind of didn't materialize, but then I loved Chicago and I just got stuck there for like six years, like doing live sound and nightclubs and, you know, performing and bands and DJing and just like, you know, having fun in Chicago. And then I moved to Los Angeles. Okay. Um, I got a, but I did get a job for bug music. They were uh, in Chicago at the time. They were like the largest independent music publisher, I guess in the world. And then cobalt came along BMG or later BMG acquired them. But at the time they needed somebody in Chicago to kind of rep, be like the guy in town for the ad agencies. Cause all the, a lot of the agencies are in Chicago. Yeah. So I became like the bug guy in Chicago for a couple of years. And that opened my eyes up to music publishing and like this whole side of the world. And I was like, aha, there's like jobs here. Okay. So then you realize like, Oh, wait a minute. Like there's, there's lots of opportunity and it seems like this is something I could, do you feel like all, like everything that you did kind of like when you get to that point, you're like, Oh, I'm, it's kind of like the accumulation of all these different skills and all these different things that you hopped around. This is where it like comes into play now. Yeah, I do think that, I mean, I like, I had a very aimless, you know, like path, I mean, not entirely aimless. Like I wanted to work in music and I just didn't know where, you know, I mean, it's such a, a big industry potentially. And I, this kind of goes back to like, I think when you're, when you come from a a place that's not like a music or an entertainment industry center, like New York or LA or even Nashville, you just don't know like how big and how many niches and how many er things there are to do. Like, you know, Seattle was like a big cool scene on the map at the time, but like, just because a lot of bands came from there. Didn't know, didn't mean anybody there knew what they were doing, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like there's no music industry in Seattle and there never has been. And there still isn't. It's just like a lot of talented musicians come out of that town. Um, so I, I just didn't know like any of this stuff. Cause like nobody ever tells you, like the only thing you know, learn from movies and TV is like record labels, sign bands and the radio plays them, you know? Um, and at that time, like the, the streaming was just beginning to like decimate the recorded music industry. All, everybody was getting laid off. You know, it was like, uh, iTunes. Well, I guess it wasn't streaming. It was, it was iTunes. It was yeah. like, I- iTunes is ruining the music business. It was also the beginning of this like technological revolution that was changing music in all these ways, but you'd have all these startups that, you know, would fail. And, and so I kept like working for all these like random things that just never seemed like they would go anywhere. 
Um, and, and so once I kind of got into music publishing and realized, oh, this, this is this massive industry that's existed for longer than I even knew about that's sort of the backbone of the whole industry. And, you know, it leverages copyrights into, you know, all these other mediums, film, television, advertising, like that's, you know, there's money to be made there because it doesn't come from the music industry. It comes from industries that have money. Yeah. <laughs> what I think is really cool about this, and this is where, uh, you know, an artist that maybe is, you know, trying to approach you or, some, you know, another music supervisor, they don't often think about, oh, music supervisors and people that are in positions like you are, are also fans of music and are also passionate about like the whole thing. Yeah. I just, I mean, yeah, I grew up like with really like snobby strident opinions about music (laughs) and like desperately trying to be cool in Seattle in the nineties. And like, you know, the era of the most like, like, uber hipstery like peacocking like you know who's your who what's your favorite most obscure band that you can possibly like it it, it, everything is just like ripe for parody it's like yeah you know and so i i mean yeah like i i just but i i loved it but it was all you know uh everybody i feel like everybody in those scenes are so self-conscious yeah you know (laughs) and 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 it makes you like just dive so deep to like you know, discover the newest, the coolest thing. And I, I, I sort of loved that about it. And, but then also it, it really fed into my, my passion for like creating music as well. Uh, and I just, even though I, my, I felt like my kind of expiration date for rock stardom was fast approaching as I was in getting into my 20, like late twenties and being like, I don't think there's really yeah. a play here. Like I just didn't want to give it up. Like I still like, I want to be around this in some way. And when I, when I finally learned about like the, the role of what music supervision was and how that combines, like, you know, the things I liked about film and television and all that, I was like, Oh, this is so, this is where I have to be. And it just seemed like something I could sink my teeth into. Like unlike yeah. everything else where it was like, I would try it out and be like, there's nothing here, nothing here. There's nothing here. And then this I was like, Oh, there's so much here for me to like get good at. And it also, it seemed like an area where it wasn't oversaturated yet. Like yeah. there was store of still the wild west. I could kind of make my, my own future. It wasn't just a whole bunch of gatekeepers for me being like, no, you can't do this. Oh, you know? I like that, that there's not like gatekeeper because I feel like a lot of people get that. Oh, I wish I could do that. Oh, there's a lot of gatekeepers. And, but to be there at the beginning or not to begin, but at an industry where there's few, and it's like, cool, this is a place for me. Yeah, it was still very evolving. I mean, there's way more gatekeepers in this now yeah. than there ever have been, and it's wild just how much it's changed in like 15 years or so since I've been doing music supervision. But it's not like I was one of the first music supervisors at all. But I was got into it at a point where it was started to become like something known outside of like niche bubbles in entertainment, yeah. where you know TV shows that had cool soundtracks and fans were like knew what a music supervisor was. So it was still early enough that like. I could, I started doing it literally just by saying I was one and then somebody hired me and then that wasn't a lie anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm curious. So was that just also too, you're like, I'm just going to own the title and you know, eventually it, you know, shit's going to happen. Like somebody's going to be like, yeah, you kind of, I, I mean, it, there was a bit of a dovetail of like, I, I did end up getting a job for um, a Seattle based music library that wanted representation in LA. So I was like pitching like library music, which uh, wasn't quite as oversaturated then as it is now. And knowing that I wanted to move, move into music supervision. And then it turned out that um, a production Seattle based production company whose owners I knew were doing a big campaign for Microsoft. And they like kept reaching out to me for advice on like how to kind of handle 
handle this music supervision side of it, which had been sort of delegated to them somehow through just like, I don't know, like it just wasn't getting taken care of by the brand or any other agency. So the production company's like, how do we do this? And I, and they're like, can you, can we pay you to, to do it? And I was like, yeah, I'll music supervise your Microsoft ads. And what ended up happening is these ads were supposed to be, um, online and they had a different broadcast agency handling all like the big, like, like, you know, flagship pieces, but the brand liked the, the online stuff better than their broadcast pieces. So they flipped them and, and put them on television. So I ended up, you know, music supervising like seven g- giant broadcast ads for Microsoft. <clears throat> and so it, even though I, so I was working pitching, I ended up kind of stepping into that. And then, so from there, that's basically, so technically I'd done that, but then I started calling myself a music supervisor and then I got hired on a film, but I'd never music supervised a film. So and I had already kind of learned a lot about music publishing. So I wasn't like I was totally full of crap, but I was definitely like, you know, fronting to some degree. Now, <laughs> what's interesting about that, what would you say are maybe like uh, big misconceptions about, you know, in terms of the way people think music goes into a film and, the and you know, oh, it's on the picture now. I feel like there's so much in between that you have to clear and you have to figure out uh, that's a lot of responsibility on you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, I think the thing, this has helped me to like explain the role a little bit, uh, because it is so broad potentially, like it can be very, very narrow or, or just like really confusingly broad at the role on a, on a production of any kind, uh, you know, it, it's like anything that touches music can potentially fall in your lap to deal with. If, if nobody else understands how to do it, they're like, Oh, you're the music supervisor. Can you figure this out? So what I say is that it's really that the job is, is a project management job. You know, you're, you're basically producing the music department. You're, you're the head of the music department on a project and about 70%, depending on the job, 60 to 70% of that is project management, logistics, paperwork, negotiation, like budget management, uh, ego management, uh, like therapist, uh, you know, and then there's like 30% of that, maybe more depending on the project. That's like what people would consider creative, like listening to music, watching picture, like what's the right song that goes into your, who should I reach out to? That would be the best composer who's, you know, but all of it is budget driven and logistics driven. How much time do we have? When do we need to get this done? What's the easiest, quickest path to get this done in the way that, you know, so it's, you're looking at the whole scope of that and constantly spinning all of these little plates to arrive at the creative decisions that, that like, I would say work best, but sometimes it's not best. Sometimes it's like work easiest and fastest and well enough, <laughs> you know? No, I like that <laughs> easiest and fastest enough. What makes something's, and I, I guess the, you know, scenarios can change and it can always be different, but what makes something like easy and fast that is like you know not a nightmare (laughs) sometimes it just comes down to i mean actually i'd say a lot most of the time it comes down to relationships you know Uh, there's a lot of i mean there's more music being made than ever before uh there's more pre-existing songs in the world than ever before and there's more composers out there you know uh i get you know you're bombarded by solicitation emails every day from, you know, the re- the usual places, new places, you know, composers, all that stuff. So, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of them are very competent. Like any of them might do a really great job uh, on stuff, but I don't know these people and, and anything in an entertainment 
uh, I think, and especially in film and television and probably advertising is these decisions are largely like fear based <laughs> everything. Right. It's like, there's money on the line and yeah. every, nobody wants to like lose their job, in, including me. So like I make decisions like partly, you know, based on who I've worked with before that's done a good job for me. And so I trust that and I can vouch for it. And, you know, so that would be an example of like easier and faster because like, you know, if I were to say, all right, I'm working on a low budget movie and I've, I've got $30,000 to spend on a composer. And I know that the director is into this kind of vibe. Here's a guy that I know that's done that for me before really well. And then five other people that are like, yeah, this is the kind of thing we do too. And we would also like that job. Well, it's tough for me to be like, yeah, I'm just going to take a chance on any one of you guys, but I've worked with this guy before. So I'm going to, that's, that's like easier and faster for me, you know, which makes sense because you're also connected to that project and that person. If like, you know, they do it and let's say they give you something completely opposite or they're like, Oh, it's going to take a little bit longer. Or it's just like, actually when we said we did it, we kind of do the thing. <laughs> it's just like you, that's yeah. tied to you too. So the, like that I can get, maybe it's, you know, it's funny when you talked about bands, I think some people think music is that like, yeah, kid, I'm going to take a chance on you. <laughs> you seem like you've got my, you know, yeah. and it's not like that. It's like, I know this person, they, I see what they've done before. They deliver They're you know, they're easy to work with. They're not a pain that, you know, they're 90, you know, I may have 99 problems, but they're not going to be one of them. They're gonna yeah. Be and, and of course, like I, like working with new people and I like meeting new resources, but the way they kind of get integrated into your world tends to, it's less often just like throw, like rolling the dice and be like, I want to work with somebody new. Let's pick you. You seem cool. It's usually more like, like, you know, uh, maybe on another movie, the director knew this composer, he was already attached. And then I didn't have anything to do with their hiring, but I worked on this movie, saw that they did a great job. And then something else comes up where we need like a similar kind of creative. And I go, you know, who would be great for that is the guy that was on this last movie. I didn't hire that person on that one, but I'm gonna on this one. So now that's like someone that like I hadn't worked with before, but I saw how their workflow, I saw them deliver on that. And like, so now I'm willing to vouch for them. Like I didn't have to, it wasn't me on the line last time. I can be like, you did a great job on that. So now I'm going to bring you onto this. And I can say, you know, in honesty, like I know this person does a good job because I've worked with them before. Now that's a cool example of even though you may not know that person, you're watching what they're doing. You're you're yeah. connected in some way, and sometimes people don't realize that the the things that they're doing in the process. It, it's like people are watching, and even, mm-hmm. so it's just like you know, don't be an asshole to you know deliver well, and it's just like just show up and just do the work well. Yeah, and so much of it is personality. Like at yeah. a certain level, you kind of assume like a baseline level of competency. Like you know, we're all you're all good musicians, you know. But but so much of the job does come down to like you know, you're going to spend four months maybe on something and like, this person's really cool. Like the, I think the director's really going to like you, like, you know, and so like them feeling comfortable and being able to communicate, especially with a composer. Uh, and I know this is like, it's funny cause this is like my onboarding of composers is m- maybe 20% of what I really do, but it, it, I think it descriptively is easier to talk about, you know, when it comes to like the logistics of like, you know, the sort of project management side of music, music supervision, where it's like, I'm matching your music to this production, but also your personality to this director and, um, and her or his ability to work with you to communicate, you know, even if you don't get it the first time, your personalities 
like I think will do a good job together, you know, because if you have, you can have a really talented composer who's like rigid and uh, tough to work with and it won't work because the director gets frustrated, doesn't know how to communicate and they don't get the right result. Hey, it's Mike. I just wanted to jump in the middle of this episode. Let me guess. You are a songwriter that is never short of ideas, but you've got a million voice memos. You've got them all categorized there. Tons of voice memos. Well, let me tell you something right now. You want to level up your game, but I'm going to be honest. Those voice memos, you can't show those. What you need is a better a better recording, a better version. That means you have to break open your DAW. So whether it's Logic, whether it's Pro Tools, whether it's FL Studios, whether it's Ableton, here's the thing. It's overwhelming. It's confusing. It's it's daunting. It's it's so crippling. That's why Madeline Finn, one of our coaches, has a free series, DAW 101. So all you got to do is go to songwritingforguitar.com and you're going to scroll down to our free resources and you're going to see DAW 101. You're going to click it. You're going to sign up and she's going to take you through the process of how to record a fantastic guitar vocal with, with minimal stress. It's going to sound way better than your voice memo that you feel great that you can show off to a producer. You could show off to a publisher. You could show off to your co-writer. You can f- convey your ideas much more effectively with a quality recording. So songrankforguitar.com, scroll down to our free resources section and sign up for DA 101. It goes back to relationship personality, relationship personality. It's it's people often well is that a big well the music's important it's like no the music's totally important but you do have to be you have to gel well with people and you have to realize like if somebody asks for a change it's because it's a service-based thing and you go sure no problem and not like no yeah 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 is there's a million hurdles and there's so much stuff that's frustrating mm-hmm. and a pain in the ass and like that comes up on every single job and things where like I want to be like this isn't my problem this is your problem yeah you know but like to a certain extent just sucking it up and doing it I mean look I get the only way I get hired is getting hired again or being referred by people that I end up connecting with on some point on every production and like I mean, whether I'm the best music supervisor out there is highly debatable. Uh, my cho- creative choices, you know, are maybe only a fraction of what ends up getting me hired again on something. It's like that person didn't screw it up and we like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that's the thing. Too. It's like it's all connect. I guess there's ways of looking at it like oh, I just composed. Yeah, but it, you were part of like this whole unit where everyone's connected. The director and music supervisor. We have editor. Everyone has to gel together to make that project work and if there's a kink in the system yeah and then and there often are i mean there's just you know and it's also productions are kind of um you know it's a little bit like summer camp or high school you know to some degree like you know there's a lot of people working on something and you know not everybody always gets along and there's always like some gossip like oh this fucking person can they just you know and you never know who it's going to be but you yeah. hope it's not somebody on on your team or somebody yeah. that you brought in you know but like that happens like there's like some music editor who's like a grumpy pain in the ass and it's like we, we're not going to hire that guy again like god would you just like shut up and do the thing you know um Uh, and so uh, yeah it's just that's such an important part is like they have to be good yes but there's a lot of technically proficient people in Hollywood 
I want, I need something that's like good and cool and like, you know, not, not like saying a pushover who's just going to like eat crap and do whatever you tell them, but like, no, have be confident in their ability to like manage all of that in a diplomatic way. <laughs> and to me, that's also saying like, they know how to manage their ego, like their egos in yeah. check. And it's like, yeah, they got opinions and they're going to be like, if they feel like something is like, no, I really think this is good. But at the same time, they're not going to be like, fuck you. I added yeah. in anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Or just right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, there's always a point at which, you know, you're in service of the director or showrunner's vision. And there's definitely things that creatively I don't always agree with. And I'm only going to like push so hard against that until it's like, yeah, it's not the Mike Turner favorite song show. So <laughs> now I guess that's a question. Like, how do you, you know, there's the personal choices, which are like the things that you love. Are there things that you're like, yeah, I'm working on this. I'm not really crazy about this, but I'm working on it. You can still objectively make those choices. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I take, well, I mean, there, I take on jobs that I'm not super inspired by all the time. Cause it, at some point it's just, a, it's a gig if they have like the budget. Uh, and you know, I mean, there's not much that I turn down if I have the time and the, and the money's okay. I, and then, you know, what do they say? There's like, some, some are for the meals and some are for the reels. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like every few, like you get something cool that you're really proud of. Yeah. You're like, wow. Um, and even the ones that I'm not like crazy about, I usually find something to be like proud of as far as my work on, on the music. Um, you know, whether it's just the needle drops or, you know, the score or, something but yeah i mean like i i feel like i i do my best for every production but you know some things are better on the page than they were executed you're like no i like the script better than the movie turned out but you never know maybe it could have won an oscar (laughs) if somebody's listening to this and they're like man i i really want to do i want to contribute music to you know film and tv what is the first step to move in the right direction i know that's a pretty huge answer where I'm like, you know, just a couple sentences, but like, you know, cause sometimes people are discouraged cause they're like, wow, there, you know, if there's so many people out there, what's going to separate me, what's going to make me, you know, stand out in the sea of never ending things to choose from. Yeah. I mean, if it's, uh, if it's, there's, there's sort of two sides to that. There's like songs, like getting your, your songs into movies and TV and then, or, or if you're trying to be a composer, that's sort of a different route. Um, in both cases to some degree it's relationships but uh, if it's songs and you're like you know you're a, a recording artist or a touring artist that you're in a band and and you want to get your songs in, in stuff i still think that the best thing to do is focus on pretty much every other aspect of your career as an artist like touring making fans all of that stuff is what gets you noticed that's what like people then come gravitate to, to your music and say oh, i want to use that in a tv show but then to making sure that that's available by having somebody else representing it, you know, yeah. like what, even if it's in the early stages, even if it's just a library deal, uh, with a low barrier for entry, but making sure that it's just out there in the mix that like they're sending, you know, pitches out to music supervisors. Like it's just, it's a numbers game at that point. And then, you know, the, the more your star rises as an artist, if that's your focus, um, the more people are going to come find you for that. Um, and of course, you know, it doesn't hurt to, meet to know whether it's music supervisors, directors, producers. I mean that those I get music comes to me also through the production. I mean, there's always somebody with a cousin or a friend or whatever, and they <laughs> want to send me a folder of music that, you yeah. know, and I listen to that stuff cause I have to, cause it's the director's 
cousin or whatever, you know? So sometimes it makes it into the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't hurt. It's relationship driven. And then composing is the same way. Like with that, I would say that then it's really important to like, you start small and like, you know, be scoring like student films and making friends with directors who need a score that you can do for peanuts or, or, or cheap. And hopefully the people that you're doing that stuff for, they, their profiles rise and they keep hiring you back, you know I mean? And introducing you to their director friends and stuff. I think that is, that's fantastic advice on both ends because to me, if you are an artist, it's, you're saying keep on focusing on what you're doing well and just keep on working at that. Don't go like, well, I guess I, you know, I wrote Five songs put out an EP. We're just going to wait for it to get placed. Let's just wait. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think there's a lot. There's there was such a boom in the sort of sync business. And there's so many companies that really like sought to kind of capitalize on that and is sort of like get rich quick style thing that like convinced a lot of artists that like a great sync placement is like the key to your music career. And I know that it's happened here and there, but those days are dwindling if ever like the the odds that one killer placement is going to blow you up as an artist anymore are very small um just compared to the amount of potential opportunities there are for your music and so i would say if anything it's the opposite it's not like sinks aren't the key to your music career your music career is the key to sinks you know (laughs) super deep right (laughs) well it's it's it it does make sense because you know you pro- you get inundated probably with tons of music where you can sniff out where it's like, that's not a real song. There's that, but also just like, you know, e- even if it is like, you know, if I uh, like, l- uh, let's say I'm on a indie movie and I've got $5,000 to spend on a cool cue I- as source in a bar, like that's cool. And I'm so stoked to be able to like give five grand or whatever to a, a indie band and they're happy to have it. But like, I, I don't think I've ever seen once them go on to be superstars just because there's 30 seconds of their song and playing in a bar and a scene in a Netflix movie. Like, I mean, it's cool, but it's the odds of that, like making you, it just, it doesn't really happen anymore. Maybe if it was an Apple commercial, um, or there's a few types of like high profile syncs that definitely get you noticed more. But even then, like, I just don't see that happening the way it did. Like, Oh, there's a brand that used a song and now this band is huge. It's like, you know, it, it, it bumps your, your streaming numbers up for a while and there's nothing bad about it. But again, it's like, these are take the money. It's cool exposure. It's all like a stepping stone, but like, this isn't going to probably break you. You should also be doing everything else. This is mailbox money. It's look good. Look, yeah. keep doing what you're doing though. <laughs> yeah. Keep on going and keep on yeah. writing more songs, keep on releasing, keep the engine going and don't rely on necessarily one thing that's going to carry you there. It's like also your work ethic and whether you want to keep on doing this is also going to be a key of whether this just keeps on going. Yeah. And the money, the thing is like the, the amount of money that you're able to make to some extent is kind of tied to like who you are to a degree, right? Like expensive songs are famous songs. Yeah. Um, songs that nobody's ever heard of don't cost as much to license because there's a lot more options. I mean, brands, pay a lot more to use even indie music in you know advertising and same with like trailers or certain kind of like high profile spots that that you can command a decent fee from but still like you know maybe you you might get 20 30 grand like for like a like major spot like that or or like if it's a national maybe it's like nike or something maybe it's almost a hundred thousand dollars but that's like winning the lottery your average sync for an indie band is going to be probably somewhere between like a thousand and five thousand dollars you know as background in a tv show it's not life-changing money um 
so I just you can't really depend on it. <laughs> you, you can't write on that one. Yeah. It was I was trying to describe with someone where I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got I do like you know tons of reality TV shows. I was like, but I'm not relying on that one show because it's like literally like yeah. oh it's like sixty bucks a queue. It's like it's not necessarily life changing, but I have to keep on creating just like a shit ton consistently and yeah, and it's feeding it. Well, and it's just because of just kind of basic supply and demand yeah. economics. If there's like a bazillion indie artists that all want their songs in TV shows and there's, you know, like a never ending supply of libraries that are shoveling that to you, it, it like the value is dramatically drops. And that's what happened when it, when the stigma of selling out completely wore away and nobody cared anymore. <laughs> and suddenly music was just like everywhere. Right. But what that, the one thing that doesn't really change is the equity in famous copyrights. Like, because it's a famous copyright, it's the only one. It, and so, like, if we need that song, there's no other way to get it except for pay that one entity that has the rights to it whatever amount of money they want. Or just, we can't afford it and we'll have to move on. But if it, it, all things being equal, it's like, hey, we need a rock song. And there's, like, a million rock songs being, like, thrown at your face. Then you're like, here, f- take $500 or we'll find somebody else. You know? <laughs> And so most people are like, what? Yeah, okay, okay, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like so like like, like greedy capitalist, but it, it kind of is just like, you know, I don't know. Like it, it reminds me of that, that uh, Arrested Development line with like Lucille Bluth. Like how much could a banana cost, Michael? $10? You know? <laughs> She's like never been to the grocery store. She's like, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> But no, that that <laughs> makes sense too because you're right. In the you know past five years, like you know the amount of like you know ads that I'll get, where I'll just be like, "Hey, do you want to get license? Hey, do you want to get license?" And so everybody's like, mm-hmm. "Hey, I want to do license. This is it." Uh, yeah. I had someone. Uh, I had a client that was like a one-off, and the first question was asked was like, "Is this a great way to make fast money?" I was like, "It's a terrible way to make fast <laughs> money." I was like, "This right. is the worst way." Yeah. right now yeah don't i was like unless you are absolute it seems like the, the big thing that i'm seeing continually though that people that keep on doing it is they're number one super patient they're constantly creating a body of work they're not stopping but they're also too constantly connecting with people because they mm-hmm. realize in the value of what you're saying is like they know someone eventually they make a connection that connection they may not tap them on the shoulder right away it may be like a year two years later where they go oh shit like you know what i think they'd be actually really awesome for this yeah yeah and that's the thing yeah it uh you know and there are always you know like just stars align sometimes like crazy things happen you know timing right time right place like right song i mean Gosh, the movie. I'm working on a movie right now, um, starring Jenna Ortega for Paramount, and it's it's cute. It's like a coming of age teen romance. Uh, it's Jenna Ortega and her co-star from Wednesday, this guy Percy Hines White. Did you see Wednesday? Yeah, he's like the blonde Xavier, I think, in that. And everybody really shipped that relationship. Like it never happened in the show, but like all her fans are like, ooh. So they get to play like opposite each other as romantic leads in this movie. So it's like very exciting. Um, and there's a band in the in the movie, and there's a band in the script. And through, I, you know, the director is uh, a friend of mine and we've been talking about this script for a couple of years uh, and she's been trying to kind of get it made. So she got it greenlit. And like it, at some point, the band was like a sort of a ma- male, like kind of almost famous sort of 
cliche rock band and mm-hmm. I suggested like what if we make it a woman you know like maybe she's more of a Phoebe Bridgers type yeah she yeah. loved that I just was like ah, I haven't seen that as much like she's not so much comic relief but has like you know some like wisdom but she's like cool and it's like and a real artist I think we should cast a real artist to play themselves um, and of course in 2020 when we were talking about this Phoebe Bridgers was playing like venues the size of the Troubadour you know so that seemed maybe more doable now she's like a superstar but uh, but she liked that idea. So she like wrote that in, she changed the character of the artist. And so when we, this got greenlit and, and she was, she was like, Oh, who are going to get a fine? I, I suggested only one artist for this. Uh, and she's not anybody that like had any particular fame. It was literally just an artist that maybe three years before I'd gone in to see, uh, another band and she, they were opening at the bootleg. Uh, and I was like, Oh man, she's really fantastic. Like she's got something, um, love these songs. I followed her on Instagram. I saw her a couple other times at, at places in LA we, and like we connected at one point, like for a drink and talked about her music, but like, I didn't really know her at all. Uh, and then like three days before this movie, like went into, well, before I got hired on it and then we were into production a few weeks later and the director was like, who are we going to get to cast it to be this role? This artist, this artist had like texted me, a, a brand new song, like a link to a song. Uh, she was like, Hey Mike, I know you're a music supervisor. We haven't chatted in a while. I just wanted to like, you know, I wrote this new song and it really just feels like some, like a coming of age teen romance or something. And I was like, man, this is so good. I love this song. I really, yeah. And, uh, and when, when I talked to the director and we were, this came up, I was like, listen to this. What do you think about this? It just kind of reminds me of the end of your movie, fully expecting her to be like, yeah, that's cool. Let's keep looking. I don't know what else you got. She listened to it on the phone with me and was like, just like, I love this. Who is this artist? And I was like, she's just, you know, like a cool songwriter here in LA. I just think she's like talented and I like her songs. And I sent her her Instagram. She's like, Oh, she's adorable. She's like, let's set up a meeting. And literally two weeks later, she was cast in the movie. And like a couple weeks after that, we were in Salt Lake city shooting it for nine days. (laughs) <laughs> so she has like multiple like scenes, like big scenes, lines in the movie. So she's playing herself in the film. Yeah. And it's the only, I sent her, I sent the director one song. And it's the only person that I even, I like just off the top of my head. Cause she'd sent me that song three days before. And I was like, Oh man, this is so good. I don't know. Let's see what the director thinks. And that was it. What I, lo- <laughs> I mean, there's a shit ton I love about that, but what <laughs> I love is, yeah, that was a connection, but she mm-hmm. wasn't waiting on you to then, mm-hmm search and then think and remember but she like followed up and she followed up a little bit later like hey we haven't you know we met last touch but i wanted to send you this you know yeah. you know maybe that that because it's kind of what you're talking about like still doing it still do, not waiting waiting mm-hmm. for someone to swoop in and be like let me take you there because you just popped in your mind my mind but you were just like yeah you know what she yeah and out. she she wasn't, she's not like a part of any of the, you know, sort of, con- she's not someone that's at the, those conferences all the time. Yeah. Like she's not involved in like songwriting camps. She's got her band, j- plays her songs, does little tours, like really just kind of in the studio focused on that stuff. Doesn't really, uh, ne- never really was a part of that bubble in Hollywood, mm-hmm. which is kind of, there's like that songwriter kind of hustle bubble. Um, and, uh, I, so she wasn't one of those, uh, those folks. I just always really liked her music. And even when we met like, for a drink the year before she didn't even have any sync rep- representation at all and, and hadn't really considered it. And so I, I had suggested a company that I thought, you know, would, would like her music and she did end up contacting them. So they started representing her, but yeah, she just reached out like a year later, just 
kind of like, oh, I thought of you. I just thought you'd like to hear this song. And I was like, I love this. That's awesome. <laughs> Dude, that, yeah. that is, I mean, that's such a cool I don't know, just your journey in general, just like, it, again, I like that it's not just like this straight path, like, well, I woke up one day and I was like, you know what, I'm <laughs> going to be, but like, here we go. It was just like all over the fucking place. You know, you're, you're yeah. in Arizona, you're in New York, you're in Miami, you're in Chicago. And then finally you're, you're in LA. Um, but dude, this was so good because I think for a lot of people just hearing, you know, if you're going to do this. You have to love it. Like you have to love your music. You have to be passionate about it, but you have to stay with it. No one's coming in to just be like, oh, this one placement, I'm going to swoop in and I'm going to take you to the top. It's like, no, you may get a little boost, yeah. but then you got to keep on going. Yeah. That said, I would say this example is one of those things and we'll see. It remains to be seen, but yeah. this is the type of thing that like I could see having like an indelible impact on her career. And I certainly yeah. hope it does because it's a little bit different than just like having your song in the movie. There's like, she actually performs three times on camera in this film. And I think we're using four of her songs and like, um, and you know, she's like a character in the movie. She, we've got like her name on the marquee out in front of the big theater. You know, like she plays venues, you know, maybe the size of like Zebulon to like a hundred, couple hundred people. But in this film, we've made her into like, like a Phoebe Bridgers that can fill theaters. And she's like this cool touring artist in this movie. So, and her songs are great. Like it, she should be super famous, but we've just crafted her that way in this movie. And it's just, you know, I feel like people are going to be like, I got to know who this artist is. Yeah. Immediately like Shazam <laughs> yeah. and just like, I got to yeah. fall on Spotify. Is she coming to town yeah. now? Is that, we have to go see. So yeah. I think that's even, but again, that was someone that was just like, followed up with you. It was just like, Hey, yeah. I just wanted to, you know, wasn't waiting for you to swoop in. And I think that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was super fun. I actually got to be in the movie too. I play her bass player on camera. (laughs) (laughs) It was really fun. (laughs) Dude, that is amazing. Um, Dude, Mike, this was, this was awesome. We'll have to, I feel like this is just like part one because there's probably a shit ton we can keep on diving into, but this was really cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It was great, man. Thanks for having me on. And that does it for this week's episode. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and any of our previous episodes and you haven't given us a review on Apple Podcasts yet, can you just take a moment right now, scroll down, give us a five-star review and talk about your favorite episode and share an episode with a, a songwriting friend that you think would benefit from the things that we've shared. And if you have, thank you so much. You're the reason why we keep on putting out amazing episodes like this one and the one you'll hear next week. And like all of them, they were edited and produced by Chris Vifalius. I'm Mike Myers. Thanks for listening.